Well, today we return to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, an ancient autobiography of one of the greatest leaders in the Bible. And the beauty of this 2,500-year-old journal is not only did Nehemiah lead well, but he walks us through the entire process from start to finish, giving us a front row seat to what he learned and demonstrating those leadership principles in a way that are simple and profound and godly. And many of these same principles can be found in any leadership book, even secular leadership books. You can get some really good ones. But some of the things Nehemiah did are unique to Nehemiah and only found here in the Bible. And so Christ followers will benefit greatly if we pay attention to this level five leader, this Jewish man in a Persian culture, culture who led up to the point that he finally ends up later in the book being the governor uh, of this whole region of Judea. So our story opens in the palace in Susa, uh, modern-day uh, Iran, and uh, uh, Nehemiah hears news that Jerusalem is in shambles, and the city has been sacked again. God's people are in dire straits. They're unprotected, undefended, and disrespected. And when he first got this news, he was devastated. He, he says, I just sat down and cried. And uh, then he goes into this time of mourning for four months, uh, November uh, through March. He fasts and he prays, asking the God of Israel to intervene in Jerusalem in a problem a thousand miles west of where Nehemiah was living and working. And I love how he just doesn't tell anyone what his burden is for four months. He just takes it straight to God. He doesn't feel like he has to post it or get a bunch of people upset about it. Um, and, I, and, and, I, and I thought about this and I wondered, how many times have I gotten upset about something and immediately just start blabbing about it? And, uh, or how many times have I been made aware of a problem and I thought, well, I'm the problem solver and I need to jump in and fix this thing uh, without sitting with it for a while. That's what Nehemiah did. He wisely processes it in prayer uh, for four months without doing anything to solve it. And this is one of those principles you will not find in those other leadership books, not even Christian leadership books. This, this one sets his story apart. And I've come to believe that this first step is what launches him into the rest of his life. It's the part at first where the leader doesn't do anything. Just doesn't get busy for a while. Many of the biographies of leaders that, that, that we have, people who eventually achieved greatness, the first few chapters open with all the mistakes they made 
trying this and it didn't work, trying that and it didn't work until they finally succeeded. And we love these stories because it, it points out their, their tenacity. But honestly, when you think about it, you have to wonder, did they have to do it that way? I wonder if they had been slower out of the starting gate if they would have run the race without so many stumbles um, early on. I, I, I wondered if they had just taken time to, to pray it through and process it in God's presence uh, if they wouldn't have done things right the first time. And that's why Nehemiah took it so slow. He, he knew he needed to wait on God because God would have to provide the right uh, solution. And therefore, Nehemiah didn't need trial and error once he got busy because he got it right um, the first time. And I don't know how difficult that was for him. It would be really difficult for me. Uh, I'm so impressed by how patiently he sat with it without solving it and how he centered himself on God instead of obsessing on the challenge. And all the while, he knew the situation in Jerusalem was getting worse. But he also knew he didn't have the solution yet. So why get busy doing what you don't know until God tells you how to do it? So he waits on God for 121 days. 121 days of not acting. When you know no one else is doing anything either. Now I'll tell you now what we will see in a few weeks when Nehemiah does rebuild the entire wall surrounding Jerusalem. He does it in 52 days, a feat that to this day, uh, archaeologists can't, uh, they're, they're baffled with how he did it. And if you go to uh, Jerusalem, you can see parts of this wall that are still standing 2,500 years later. So they did a great job, but it only took them seven and a half weeks to accomplish it. Seven and a half weeks to accomplish what others had not been able to accomplish for 100 years, 52 days from start to finish that started with... 121 days of doing nothing. Nothing, that is, except seeking God. Nothing, that is, except waiting on God, waiting for God. It was during that 121 days of doing nothing that Nehemiah received the plan instead of coming up with the plan. So let's take it personal very quickly. Uh, some of you are facing some big challenges. Uh, some of you are coasting through a really easy summer, and that is awesome. We're happy for you. But some of you, are, are, you've got a situation at work, or, or your marriage, or your child has gone into rebellion, or the bills are piling up, and you're thinking about a second job, or, or whatever. Take a minute to focus on the, a big challenge that you're facing. All right, who am I talking to? Who, who just said, yeah, that's me? This is not the easiest summer of my life. I guarantee you it might be the hardest one. All right. All right, let's put, a, let's put a name to that challenge. What is that challenge? Let's only think about that, that thing. All right, have you got it? All right, now I'm gonna ask you to do something very difficult. If it at all possible, I'm gonna ask you not to work on that challenge this week. You go, well, that won't solve anything. Now I'm gonna ask you to imitate Nehemiah because I dare say you probably have not fasted and prayed enough on this situation. And I dare say you're going to go out and do things by trial and error, which is your MO. Because you feel it's your, your responsibility. Let's 
try this thing where we don't do what everything in us is telling us to do, and instead we sit with it and we say, God, I don't know what to do. And so I am going to ask you, I'm going to hold off on doing much of anything on this. And you might even end up having to let a deadline pass. And you know what's interesting is our deadlines and God's deadlines are two different things. But see, here's the deal is if you will wait on God, it honors God and he sees that and he says, oh, so you want me to be involved in the fixing of this situation. You want me to be involved in the solution. Okay. And, uh, and he does involve himself. And if we wait on God, uh, we end up with a received plan instead of a plan that we cooked up um, or came up with on our own. And I'm convinced that if we learn to do this, we're going to make fewer and fewer mistakes. Now, I haven't done this. Uh, I, I didn't do this much as a, as a young leader, especially. I, I've learned as I've gotten older. Uh, but I, I have concluded that some of the mistakes I made in the past were avoidable. They were preventable. If I had approached the greatest challenges by hitting the pause button first and collecting my own emotions and collecting my own opinions and collecting my thoughts about how to solve these things and just kind of putting them here and then saying, God, what, what do you think about all this? And letting him work on it. I'm convinced that had I done that, I would have failed fewer times. But here's the problem. Um, I'm the kind of person, I hear this voice in my head that says, hey, you're supposed to solve this problem. What are you doing? Get busy, get moving. Uh, I'm a type A extroverted leader, uh, and I tempt, uh, sometimes I'm tempted to equate activity with progress. And sometimes the quickest solution seems to me to always be the best um, solution. So many, many times in the past, I put Band-Aids on situations that needed surgery. And why? Because the complication of that the harder way to fix something. I didn't know how to do that. But when you don't know how to do something and you have God as your friend, this is time when you stop and you say, hey, I don't know, how to, I don't know what to do here. Um, as a younger man, my, 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 my usual thing was to just start trying stuff. And, uh, and then when that didn't work, I tried something else. When that didn't work, I tried something else. And, uh, and then when I ran out of options, finally, finally I would pray. And then there was the issue of me always talking before I would think. Does anyone else relate to that? Yeah, open mouth. Then engage brain, um, open mouth, insert foot. All of those cliches are all over my house. Brenda has put them up all over for me to. And I can tell you about times when I said things that were like, why did I say that? And sometimes it was just a, a you could move on, but other times... It, it, there was long-term recovery after one conversation. I, I'll tell you about one. It's embarrassing to tell you, but uh, I was an associate pastor at a, at a nearby church, and my senior pastor pulled me aside and put me on the spot, asking me to evaluate the performance of one of my peers. And you may have been in this exact position. You know, hey, Steve, what do you think? Here, here it was. Hey, I, I, I'm, I'm wanting to coach the children's pastor up, and uh, I don't think he's doing a very good job. What do you think? Oh, I wish I would have kept my mouth shut. But see, I was flattered that he was asking me. And I, to be honest, I didn't think the guy was doing a very good job. So uh, I just went along with the conversation. Well, yeah, you know, and, you know he's, I mean, he is kind of struggling. And, and, and then the pastor says, well, what do you think I should tell him? How should I coach him? And I thought, oh, okay, well, 
And off the top of my head, I came up with stuff. Just blah, 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 blah. And, and, and in, a, in a backhanded way, I was throwing this guy under the bus with every single sentence. And I, but I, I thought I was helping. I even went home that night thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe that'll help. The next morning, I came to work and found out that he had been fired. The pastor came in and met with me and goes, well, I took your advice. I'm like, what advice? Fired him. And he goes, I'm going to give you his job. And I didn't know that the conversation the day before was a job interview. I didn't want that job. But in order to keep the job I had, I had to take that job. And it took me a year and a half to, of being a children's pastor to find out just how difficult it is to be a children's pastor. And fortunately, the guy uh, moved on and, and his life came together and he found out what I had said and he had to forgive me for that. But, but man, oh man, uh, I've learned the hard way to wait on the Lord before speaking impulsively uh, and, uh, and, and to, just, to just not solve problems sometimes. You know, there, there's, a, there's a great uh, 20th century theologian, uh, Pastor Alan Redpath, and he has, there's a lot of quotes you can, you can pull down of this guy, but one of them he says is, there's just too much working before men and too little waiting before God. Even though waiting on God settles you, even though waiting on God prepares you, uh, it prepares you. It prepared Nehemiah. Did you notice in chapter one, he starts as a cupbearer, and by chapter two, he's going to end up uh, on his way to Jerusalem, and by chapter three, he's going to be rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, but he's hardly qualified to do this. I, it's, it's fascinating because this cupbearer had never engineered anything, much less built anything. Uh, there's no indication at the beginning of the story that Nehemiah had any desire to, to do this. But after 121 days of, of prayer and fasting, the desire grew right along with it. And as the Bible says, the Lord gave him the desires of his heart. And he planted the desires of his heart into him. He said, you want to solve things in Jerusalem? Yes. Well, I'm going to make you uh, the solution. And this may not have made any sense to him all at first because he'd never been trained for this new task. He was not equipped for, for a role like this. But here's the deal. Um, God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. So if the cupbearer is willing to give up his identity, and this is a big thing because there's, there's certain jobs that have this aura around him and this identity and if he's willing to walk away from the known into the unknown, if he's willing to learn some new skills and take some big risks, but I have to say, no one in their right mind would, uh, would, would attempt this. To walk away from the best job in the palace and travel west for, for two months to attempt something that many others had failed to do. His present life is so good. He's going to have to let go of all of that in order to to, 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 to walk into God's will for his life. But it's decisions like this that, uh, that, that form leaders and create them to be who they will be, not only now, but in the future. So we just celebrated uh, the 242nd anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, the, the, the French Revolution was where the poor revolted against the uber-rich. The American Revolution is where the rich revolted against 
the rich. It's completely different. The guys that met in that room in Philadelphia for the Second Continental Congress were all wealthy landowners, and they had everything going for them. And, and, and if they had just cooperated with the king, their life would have gotten better and better and better. Huge land tracts had been, had been granted to them, and he, they had huge benefits and perks that were attached to being uh, willing servants of, of the king. But for these guys, there was a higher calling, and, and they didn't want to be part of the British Empire anymore. They, they didn't want a king all the way across the Atlantic Ocean taxing them and telling them what to do without representation. Uh, so if these men would, w- could succeed in this rebellion, they would craft a new nation. But if they didn't succeed, they would not only lose their land and their wealth, they would lose their lives. And, you know, we call them founding fathers, which is interesting because we, we kind of view these old guys with white hair. And we forget, they're all, they all have wigs on. Uh, they wore these nutty white, white wigs. So we're shocked when we discover how young these guys were when they signed the Declaration of Independence. Do you know this? When you picture Thomas Jefferson, what, how old is he when he signs the Declaration of Independence? He's 33. James Madison, 25. Aaron Burr was 20. James Monroe was 18. A teenager signed the Declaration of Independence, (laughs) proving that leadership doesn't have a minimum age requirement, does it? Or a maximum for one for that matter. Benjamin Franklin was 71. No one is too young. No one is too old to lead. Now, Nehemiah's challenge, it wasn't his age. It was his role as the cupbearer, which is such an honor. But it was an honor that came with golden handcuffs because it's really hard to find a cupbearer. So when you get one, you keep them. And so the king is not going to be inclined to release Nehemiah without God moving the king's heart and letting Nehemiah go. And that's what happens in chapter 2. Let's read it together. Verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad? Are you sick? This can, nothing, this can be nothing but, but, but deep depression, the king says. And I was terrified. Now, why, why was King, why was Nehemiah afraid to tell the king why he was, what he was truly feeling? Well, you have to know something about Persian culture in that day. In that day, you never showed any negative emotion in the palace, not any negative emotion. I mean, after all, you worked in the happiest place on earth for the best boss ever, and you just pasted a smile on your face, and uh, you, the kings would take uh, anything less than that as an insult. You're insulting them. You're, you're not happy with how they're running things, and that is not going to bode well for you. So he's terrified. The king, the king notices that he's sad. But he's also um, probably afraid because he has leaned into this not doing anything for four months, and so now is the day when he's supposed to start doing things. And that, that can really set you off uh, because what Nehemiah is about to say could never be unsaid. Not only that, Nehemiah is aware that this king had previously 
issued an edict in regards to Jerusalem. That, that Jerusalem, the building of Jerusalem was supposed to be halted. Here's what happened. And you can read about it in Ezra chapter 4. Uh, Ezra tells us that there was an enemy of the Jews named Rehem that was uh, leading a group that was in and around Jerusalem. And Rehem saw the Jews rebuilding their city, and he didn't like that idea at all. So he sent an official communi- communication to the king telling the king, hey, this isn't a good idea. You don't know these people. These are the most rebellious people you've ever met. These people, as soon as they're allowed to rebuild their city, then they'll start to rebuild their society, and next thing you know, they're not going to be paying taxes to you, and they're going to uh, rebel from you. So Artaxerxes did some homework, and he found out there was some truth to what Rehum was saying. So he, he, he sent all the, the, the paperwork to say, halt the construction don't allow the Jews to rebuild um, the city. And then Rahab and his buddies, who we're going to meet in a minute, uh, they used it as, a, as an excuse to take it further, and they attacked the Jews, and they tore down everything uh, that they had, they had been, been doing. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah responds fearfully because he knows he's going to ask a Persian king to publicly reverse himself on a decision. And kings don't like to, don't like to do that. But it's go time, so Nehemiah answers the king's question. Verse 3, I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Why didn't he say anything about Jerusalem? He calls it the city where his ancestors' tombs are. Well, he has practiced this. Um... He doesn't bring up the J word quite yet. Uh, But he did know that Persians went to great lengths to honor their ancestors, especially their ancestors' tombs. So Nehemiah says, hey, king, if you really want to know, the reason I'm sad is you have something that I don't have, that I could have. You know, if we go right outside this palace, your ancestors' tombs are at an honored place right outside this palace, and they're well cared for, they're protected. My ancestors' tombs have been looted, and, and, and they're unprotected. And if, if that was happening to you, you would be sad too. Well, Nehemiah is teaching us another leadership skill here. I hope you're paying attention because what he just did is he said things the right way to the right person. Uh, the best leaders know what to say, how to say it, who to say it to. The best leaders know who they're addressing and they adapt what they say to how that person is going to feel and in order to get the response that they need. Ineffective communicators just say the same thing the same way to everybody. But not Nehemiah. He chooses each word carefully. He'd been preparing for this conversation his entire life. This guy was the cupbearer of the king, meaning he had been in the, in the throne room when people had approached the king from all over the empire. And this guy saw, he was, able, he was in a position to observe how a certain pitch got the person what they needed. <clears throat> but then another way of talking to the king, and the king would bristle and his body language would say, you're not going to get what you want. He learned from that, so he learned how to lead up. Are you listening to me? There's a way to say something to your boss that will get you what you need. And there's a way to say something to your boss that will get you fired. And I have observed 
younger leaders, check out because the conversation they're observing doesn't have anything to do with them. And what they should be doing is they should be taking notes on how that conversation is going so that later when they are in that conversation, they can know how to say it and how not to say it. So I'll just ask you, are you the person that squanders learning moments because you happen to have a smartphone that you could just check out of anything? Don't ever let your, your boss see you do that. Don't ever let your boss, don't ever, don't ever disrespect your boss by, by, by doing that with your phone. They notice. And they say, oh, she doesn't want to, she doesn't have a future here. She doesn't want to, she's bored. No, stay engaged, stay interested. Just put a fake interested look on your face if you have to. This also, by the way, works with parents. Verse four. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. Oh, this is great. This guy's been praying for four months. You're like, hey, you're prayed up, buddy. Just talk. He's like, oh, no, no, I got to shoot one more prayer. God, help me, help me. <laughs> he, he says, he says then, then I, 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 I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Nehemiah, how hard would it be to say Jerusalem? I'm not saying Jerusalem. It's in Judah, he says. That's where my ancestors' graves are. Send me there. Then the king, with the, 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 the queen sitting beside him, responded to me. Well, we have to stop there because this tells us that they're in the private dining room. See, when kings and queens ate in larger groups, the women were in another room. That's just how it was. And, uh, but in, in a smaller setting, the king and queen would dine together. So Nehemiah is in the private dining room of the king, which, first of all, that's amazing and awesome. Secondly, he's sitting at the, there at the same table where Esther would have approached king, the king 30 years before and arranged lunch. He's, he, he would be gaining, gaining strength from being in the very room where Esther, who had fasted, Esther, who had, was fearful, but Esther, who was brave, Ask the king to do something good for God's people. And, and in that very room, now Nehemiah is going to be uh, asking uh, the same question. The king asked me, well, how long will your journey take? And when will you get back? What? Well, when are you leaving? This would, this would have been so shocking. The answer was yes. It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. All of a sudden, everything shifts now. And Nehemiah shouldn't be surprised by this. First of all, he's prayed about it for four months. Second of all, he had never given the king a single reason to doubt his judgment or his, his loyalty. It had taken him years to cultivate this stellar reputation. And it was his reputation that made this conversation possible. Friends, pay attention to this guy. There is no substitute for a good reputation. And by the time you need that reputation... It's too late. A good reputation is developed over years and years of doing the right thing day in and day out. Your actions today, even little things, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, even little things 
will form your reputation, especially with those who are above you in authority. You think they're not watching, but they are, and they don't catch everything, and that's not, that's not why you do everything. You just do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. But if that becomes your reputation, then when your judgment is called into question or your loyalty, the one above you in authority will speak for you. Um, and, and not to mention the one above you, the, one that, the people that you need to lead. Your reputation is something that you should guard like gold. Verse seven, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he'll give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Whoa, Nehemiah has done his homework. When he comes to the king, he doesn't just approach him with a problem. Hey, I'm sad because there's a problem in Jerusalem. I wish you would solve it. No, he's prepared with a solution. A solution that all his boss has to do is listen to and then approve. When Artaxerxes asks, what do you want to do? Nehemiah knows what he wants to do. How long will it take? He knows. Well, what help do you need? Here, here's what I need. He's ready with a detailed plan. Friends, when the boss asks you, point blank, what do you think you need to do? You need to have been prayed up about that to the point where you say, well... If you're asking my opinion, this is what I think, and this is what I think it'll cost, and this is uh, what I think the, the, the challenges are in this regard, and, and honestly, boss, if you'd like for me to be involved in, in helping you fix this or solve this, you answer with humility, but also with confidence that comes from doing your homework. Nehemiah even knew the name of the guy that ran the lumber yard outside of Jerusalem. The king would have known this guy's name, but he didn't need to know. Nehemiah needed to know. So he tells the king, hey, a little memo to Asaph would be really good. Because when I get there, he's going to say, who authorized you to take all this lumber and build yourself a house for Pete's sake? He said, well, you know, the, I, I, represent, I represent the king. For Nehemiah also, every gatekeeper along the way over the whole journey would have to see the paperwork because these are men who had been told that the king had halted the rebuilding of Jerusalem, and now this guy's coming through saying that he's gonna go to Jerusalem and rebuild. They're gonna need to see the paperwork on that thing, and Nehemiah is ready with that for the king's signature, the king uh, sealed. Uh, he has prepared four months for a four-minute conversation, praying while preparing, while praying, while preparing, while praying. This is so opposite of the person that will tell you, well, I'm just leaving it in God's hands. A person who's doing nothing to prepare themselves to be part of God's solution on the day that it finally comes. And then, after they miss yet another golden opportunity, they don't blame themselves. They'll figure out why the situation was, was flawed, why the person they were talking to was flawed, or they'll just say, you know, it must not have been God's will. No, that's a cop-out. My experience has been that God works his will through well-prepared People, uh, you, you can pray and prepare. You can do both. You can be a multitasker. Prayer's the first thing we do, but it's not the only thing we do. God has big plans, and as he reveals those plans to us, we have to prepare to work his will in his timing. 
Now, once it happens and he has this amazing, successful conversation, I love then how he doesn't say, well, it's because I did my homework. It's because I, I, you know, I knew the name of Asaph. I mean, who does that? I mean, I think I went the extra mile there. Uh, I love how Nehemiah takes a little credit for his over-the-top successful meeting with the king. Here's what he said. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my requests. Nehemiah doesn't brag. And this awareness uh, characterized Nehemiah's life. He knew he was blessed, and he never took God's glory. He, he knew God's hand was on him, so he bragged on God. Nehemiah is not that person that comes home after a successful day at work, and, and then everyone has to hear why, what a great thing. He just, I don't know how I thought of it, but I did. And then I said this, and then everything just magically opened, and I'm amazing. Verse 9, so I went. I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also had sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about all this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. You know, there will always be people who will oppose what you are um, about to do. Uh, especially if what you're about to do is God's work uh, done God's way. As a matter of fact, if no one is opposing you, I think you should doubt whether you're doing God's work yet because God has enemies. And compared to human beings, the enemies are powerful. I mean, there are gonna be people out there that will applaud uh, your efforts, but never forget there are people out there who have a completely different agenda than you do. And uh, these men, Sanballat, Tobiah, in a minute we'll meet Geshem. These guys uh, have uh, surrounded Jerusalem, and they do not want uh, the Jews to move forward in any kind of national identity. Um, they have a completely different thought about what should happen. All right, so now he's in Jerusalem. Verse 11, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was uh, riding on. Uh, and he does this probably because he doesn't know who he can trust yet. So he doesn't announce his intentions until after his survey was completed. A secret nighttime inspection of the devastation he will repair. And it's cool because you, you think about this, he could have come in with trumpets blaring. I mean, he had an army with him. He had all the paperwork. He had all, he came directly from the Persian palace. Uh, so he could have come in and said, hey, this is what we're going to do. I'm in charge. Everybody get busy. Uh, and he could have bullied everyone into do, doing what was really the king's edict. But the people he wants to work with have been bullied before. So he doesn't want to be viewed um, that way. So he wisely eases into the thing, uh, and he does this survey. And you, I won't read all of it, but it's fascinating because he tells us. And if you have a map of Jerusalem, you see him doing this. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls. that have been broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire, just like I heard. I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. The destruction was so great that in some places he had to get off his horse and just kind of scramble under and over and, and get a feel for these huge stones that were just laying in piles, and he's going to have to figure out how to repair this 3D uh, puzzle. 
He's surveying it before solving it. He's not getting busy until he, now he has to have a practical plan. And he's keeping things to himself until the right time, letting them plans percolate. My dad used to use that term, percolate. And you know, we don't make coffee like we used to. So, so um, uh, percolate, some of us don't know what that word means. Go look it up, it'll be good for you. Google it. <laughs> but now that he's on site, something that he'd seen a thousand miles away, now he's just seeing it, and there's nothing like knowledge on the job site. And uh, he, 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 he's getting a, a hands-on feeling for the magnitude of this challenge. And now he's ready to call a meeting, verse 17. Then I said to him, I said to them, to who? Then I said to them, he says, everybody. He calls a meeting. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and his gates have been burned with fire. You see it, don't you? You, you do see it. Or you, wait, have you lived here so long that you don't see it anymore? You see it. I'm talking about Jerusalem here. You know, city of David, the, the great city where the Queen of Sheba came all that way to fawn over King Solomon. Uh, and uh, because of the, the beauty of this place, well, isn't it beautiful now? It lies, he says, in disgrace. Come, he says, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be a disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king has said to me. See, he's been there for a while, but now he plays his cards. He says, God's favor is on me. God's favor is on us. And the king has got our back. And this would have been the first that these people had heard it. You know, they, they would have no doubt thought the king has forgotten about them. The king is their enemy. Um, so just to hear, no, I've come from the palace and the king has approved uh, this work. And then they replied, let's get busy. Let's start rebuilding. And they began this good work. And that's when you know you're a good leader. Not when people clap at your speech, but when people roll up their sleeves and get busy doing what you've challenged them to do. Verse 19, but when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshev the Arab heard about it, they mocked us. They ridiculed us. What do you think you're doing, they said. Oh, I know. You're rebelling against the orders of the king. We have the orders right here where you're not supposed to be doing this. And, uh, but Nehemiah, he doesn't meet them at this level. He confronts them from this level. I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or any historic right to it. So move along. I don't think he even raised his voice. He didn't have to. He finally tells them he speaks with the authority of the king and with the blessing of God himself. Hmm. Well, that's the end of chapter two. Let's wrap it up with one more principle, though, and this is one that you won't find in any of the leadership books. What was the, what was the one principle we talked at the beginning of this, this, this message that you won't find in other leadership books? What was it? Wait. Here's the next one. The world will tell you to, to, to say and do things that impress everyone else all the time. 
And don't let anybody forget what you've accomplished. The world will tell you to get up every day and look in the mirror and say, hey, tiger, you got this. Yeah, you're the man. You are the man. You're in the shower practicing how, saying how awesome you are to yourself. The world says, that's great. You should do that every day. Look in the tiger. Look in the, look in the mirror and be a tiger. You growl. I'm a tiger. The Bible doesn't have, say anything like that. The world will tell you that anytime you accomplish anything great, post it. <laughs> tell everybody. And if you interview for a job, oh man, anything that you've accomplished, anything, make sure that that person interviewing you hears how awesome you are. Nehemiah didn't do that. He didn't do it when he's talking to us. He didn't even do it when he was talking to his enemies. He, the way he dresses his enemies, he's like, yeah, well, yeah, if you were just coming at me, yeah, you're probably right. I don't know, I don't know how to build a wall. I don't know how to even fight you guys. I'm a cupbearer. My, look at, feel my hands. They're soft. Like if somebody tries to poison you, I can help you. <laughs> but he responds like this. Well... God is our provider. God is the one who called me to do this. And God's the general contractor on this job. Yeah, I, th I think it's going to get done. I think we're going to do it. And as for you, I, I don't really have a role for you. So you're going to have to go now. He just, he speaks with this God confidence. And that's so different than self-confidence. So listen, that's where we'll take it this week. When a crisis looms large and you feel afraid this week, Pause and center yourself and pray about it and let God get back out there in front of you and around you and over you and in you. Let him solve the problem. Be careful what you say. Choose your words carefully. You may have to eat them. <laughs> so, uh, and, and get your emotions in check. Your emotions are driving you to think you should say something that later you might regret. And then once it's, it's go time and you do have to have that conversation or make that decision, then step out and lead with confidence and make the decision. You've prayed. You've prayed up. You, the plan you have is probably from God. And if you, if you have asked for his help and you really have been good at that, even if you make a mistake, he's going to come around and fix that a lot easier than him having to just go around and clean up messes that you made having not asked him what to do. But I will say this. If God has made you the leader then please lead. We need leaders. And then, with every success, and you will have successes, don't take the credit. Brag on God or brag on the team. And, uh, and then the last thing that I, was, I would say to anyone in this room, leader or not, build your reputation now before you need it. All right, that's good enough for today. Father, I thank you for all the leaders that can hear my voice. For those that are in these rooms around the East Bay, for those that are online watching, even for those that are listening and, and driving or working out or whatever they're doing, and they're being inspired right now about a leadership challenge that they're facing. And Lord, as we have done these first two chapters of Nehemiah that unlock the door for, for the remaining chapters, I pray that we would see our life in that, 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 that light as well, is that the first few chapters are the most important because they set the tone for everything we will do later.
So Lord, I pray that you would create in us a desire to lead well and that you would call us to impossible tasks because someone has to tackle these impossible things. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just get angry about something and talk about it. It's not enough to be anger. Man's anger doesn't accomplish anything, the Bible says. But we would take that and that we would temper it in your presence and let you shift it from anger into passion, from something that could destroy into something that could ignite. And Lord, we pray that you would be our leader. You would be the one that walks with us into any impossible puzzle that we have to, to reassemble. Even if enemies are accusing us all along the way, help us, Lord, to hear those voices for what they are and then continue to move forward to lead your people well. And we pray these things in Christ's precious name and all of God's people said, amen. All right, next week, chapter three. Read up. <laughs>